If you could now open up to the book of Luke. It's funny, I, just one more comment on that. Isn't it strange how anger is kind of tasty? It's weird. It's the weird thing about human nature. It's fun to get angry. Be careful of that. Anyhow, open up to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. We're going to look at uh, the rest of the chapter. This is an amazing story. It's a hard story. But before we jump into it, I want to challenge you. It's a Bible challenge as you read the Bible this summer. And if you haven't, that's fine. But I want you, if you can, try this exercise. Try to read the Gospels with the eyes of someone who has never heard of Jesus before. Act as if you've never heard of him. Because I think we go into reading the Bible assuming a lot about who he is and his nature and what he's like. But try to go into the Bible. Let's say take the book of Luke or take the book of Mark. I've been reading Mark lately like that. Try to read it as if you've never heard of Jesus. And try to say, what, what kind of character is he? And it'll be shocking to you. Sometimes you'll find Jesus is one of the most angry people you've ever read about. He takes a whip and he clears money changers from the market. He dumps over tables, scatters their money and their animals with a whip. That's kind of angry. Oh boy, if somebody acted like that in the mall, they would be kind of unhinged, lunatic a little bit. Jesus is unhinged, often. I find Jesus rather to be um, very serious. When I read stories about Jesus, it's as if every minute of his life mattered. Like they really mattered to him. I, I have whole hours of my day that I don't even care about. Like, just let me relax. I don't want to be bothered. I don't know if Jesus did that. I mean, from what I read, it's like his minutes, his seconds were weighty. They had importance. I also find him to be kind of lonely guy. He was lonely often. He'd go up to the mountain to pray alone. He, he would tell the disciples, I don't really give myself to people because I know it's in the man. In other words, he goes, I'm not too vulnerable because I don't necessarily trust people. And then he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and his buddies are supposed to pray with him and he's left alone. He was lonely. But for me, I find what I notice about Jesus the most is he likes to mess with people. You know how we call him the Prince of Peace? I find just the opposite. I find he goes into situations to cause turmoil, like he purposely wants to make people mad. Like he's going about to tick people off. It's really odd to me. I would say he, uh, he definitely doesn't act like a grown-up. He's not proper. He is not that often cool, calm, and collected. He's always causing problems. And today, I would almost say, after reading today's story, here's the title of my message, I would call him scandalous. He's scandalous. I'm going to define that in a minute. But he's scandalous. He does things you just don't do. You know, you, the disciples say, don't go there, Jesus. He goes there. Don't do that, and then he does it. Don't talk to them, and he talks to them. He's very, sometimes, repulsive. Why are you doing that? Today's story, I'm telling you, it's shocking. We just 
we kind of blow through stories, but when you read today's story, it will shock you how, just how scandalous he is. So we're going to start in Luke 7. We're going to go from verses 36 to 50. The title of your passage should probably say, A Sinful Woman Forgiven. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Yeah, what do you want? A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, it's a no-brainer, the one, I suppose, for when he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with them began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is scandalous. I want to define scandalous for you because I think it describes Jesus perfectly. And if it describes Jesus, should we not also walk as Jesus walked? I'm not sure most of us would because we're proper. We want to be adult, reasonable people. Jesus wasn't often... <laughs> But here's what scandalous means. It means the definition in the dictionary is disgraceful, shameful, shocking, improper. Use improper. Common vernacular, the way I think we would describe scandalous, is it's those things you just don't do. You don't do that. Just don't do that. My dad was sort of like that. I'll give you some examples. My dad was kind of strange. That makes, explains a lot. I understand. I know I talk about my dad, but I'm just telling you he was strange. Growing up in his house was strange. 
When he was in 7th and 8th grade, he went to a Catholic school, and he said he had some pretty tough nuns. And he liked to make the nuns kind of mad. So he'd run down the hall and hook slide into every classroom, make the nuns crazy. I said, Dad, why'd you do that? He goes, it's just kind of funny to see the nuns mad, you know. My dad often, when we'd go into a restaurant, I have, I have four sisters and a brother, so we, as a, we have a big family going to a restaurant. We'd go into some pretty nice restaurants, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he would just fall flat on his face and lie on the ground, like he just tripped, and he'd just lie there, trying to embarrass us. But we knew our dad, so we just kept walking by, and he'd be in the middle of you know, the restaurant. You think he's, he's weird. We'd go to the mall, wait, my, well, my mom would shop, and he'd go, Chris, come here. And he'd go into the ladies' lingerie section, take like a nightgown, and start chasing me with it. I'm like eight years old. Dad, what are you doing? He knew it embarrassed me. But this was my favorite thing he did. He had a friend named Tom Curtin. Tom Curtin was a real estate agent. It was his best friend in college. And when he knew Tom Curtin had an open house, he would act like a prospective buyer. He'd go into the house, and he'd wait for other prospective buyers. And he'd go down in the basement, come running up, and go, there's rats down there. And then he'd say, I saw termites up on the floorboards. And he'd say, boy, you know, if I take a ball, it rolls down. Are you sure this floor is plumb? And his friend would be so mad, kick him right out of there. My dad is just, my dad is crazy, to say the least. But that's nothing compared to what really Jesus is found doing here. What Jesus does here, you just don't do. You just don't do it. Let me tell you the story. Starting in verse 36, he's invited to a party. Scholars, about four commentators, say it was probably a Greco-Roman symposium. What a symposium was, was a rich man had honored guests, and they would sit on these long couches. They'd be fed food and drink. They'd be waited on, and they'd enter into philosophical discussions, usually debate about some friendly philosophical issue of the day. They said the couches are arranged in a U-shape, and so they'd sit in the middle of a probably like a, a big, grand living room. And then on the outside along the walls, visitors could just listen in on the conversation. So Jesus was the invited guest. He was probably on the couch. The Pharisee was in there, and probably some of his Pharisaical friends were there, but the disciples probably were lined against the wall listening, listening to Jesus debate law. So in a way, it's an informal party, but there's standards, there's rules. There's, it's informal, but it's very formal. Because if you act in the wrong way, you're looked down on as uncouth, lower class. It's, it's a lot like if you've ever gone to a country club to go golfing. I had a very rich friend growing up, and he'd invite me to his dad's country club. He had a membership where they had a tab. at the You get it, whatever you want to eat, and they'd have a tab. But I only had t-shirts. I didn't really have the nice collared shirt. And every time we went golfing, he had to buy me a collared shirt to go golfing because it's proper etiquette. And you had to golf the right way. It's not, sorry, it's not like our men's golf league. Nothing like that. But you can't walk in front of somebody's putting line. If somebody's on the green, you had to take the flag out of the pin. If they're outside the green, you had to keep it in and stand to the right but you, have to, you cannot be in their line of sight. And if you were, they would be mad at you. You were not living to the proper etiquette of the country club golf course. And they probably talk like that. But it's informal, but it's formal. 
a symposium is informal. You know, they're hanging out. But it's very formal because they brought Jesus in to evaluate him. Critical. Does he measure up? Enter two players. First player of this story is Simon the Pharisee. He is the host, probably very rich. This was his house. It means he was clearly important. And from the outset, in verse 36, he seems like a gracious man. He invited Jesus, so that's, that's nice. He didn't have to. It's nice. He provided the meal, he hired the servants, he had the couches, and he supplied the wine, and I'm sure they had plenty of wine. So he was rich, and he probably was incredibly important. So he was the guy that set the standards for the Jewish social convention the proper etiquette, the way to act. Enter the lady. We find her in verse 37. She is described as a woman of the city, a sinner. This is a euphemism for a prostitute. In common language, she's the town whore, is who she was. People knew her quite well, and they avoided her at all costs. And to any good Jew, if you're a good Jew, this lady's unclean. She's dirty. She's not to be seen with, talked to, looked at, touched. She is not allowed in your house. However, she heard Jesus was at a party, a symposium where you could go and watch, and she entered in. She wanted to show Jesus her gratitude, and nothing would stop her. Nothing would stop her. No proper etiquette would stop her. Jewish tradition didn't stop her. Social expectations didn't stop her. She had to see Jesus, and she didn't care how embarrassing it was. Luke doesn't say, but apparently she must have met Jesus earlier. Maybe she saw him heal people. Maybe she talked to him. But there's some kind of relationship they had earlier, because she's overwhelmed at his amazing mercy. That's what this is about. But Luke just wants us to see how she crashed the party. She had no business being at this party. She's like the out-of-towner in every Western that you've ever seen that enters into the saloon and you can hear the whistle. I can't whistle, wait. Like that. You know, he enters into the saloon and everybody's getting their hands on their guns. Who is this guy? This lady enters into Simon's house, and you can see people furrowing their eyes, looking at her slant-eyed. No one wants a whore in, like you in here. can just feel their laser anger at her. Can you imagine being her? What well, scandalous. You don't go into this party. You don't. You're not invited. You are unclean. But it gets worse. Look at verse 38. Verse 38 is bad. It says, standing behind his feet. So she, first of all, goes and stands by Jesus, identifies herself with Jesus, and stands right at his feet. And then it says, she began to wet his feet with her tears because she was weeping. So she's crying loudly at this party. Could you imagine how awkward that is? <laughs> it's like, shut up, lady. Seriously, she's crying so bad, tears are rolling off her cheeks 
landing on, splashing on his feet, and she undoes her hair, starts wiping his feet with her hair. And then it says, she kissed his feet. She kissed his feet. One commentator writes, everything about this woman is wrong. Everything. She's an intruder. And to top it off, she seems to be making very lewd and shameful advances towards Jesus. They even write, some may have even misunderstood her gestures as erotic. Letting her hair down is akin to some lady in our time appearing topless. Could you imagine what they said about, how does Jesus know a lady like this? What have they been doing? She kissed his feet. Will you let anybody kiss your feet? I mean, honestly. That's weird. And Jesus didn't do anything to stop her. He didn't stand up and say, don't touch me. Who are you? Get out of here. He didn't do that. He just let her keep doing it. I can hear those guys with the slanted eyes and furrowed brows saying, I think he's enjoying that. That's why verse 39 is so easy to understand for any casual reader. Now when a Pharisee who had invited him, meaning Simon, saw this, he said to himself, he's talking to himself under his breath, ah, this guy were a prophet, you know, like a, he's really of God. He would have known who's touching him, what sort of woman this is. He'd know she's a sinner. He'd know she's a prostitute. In other words, he's saying, ah, this guy can't be a prophet. He just can't be. He wouldn't do this. If I didn't know the rest of the story, I probably would side with Simon. Jesus was in the wrong. How could he allow this soiled seductress of a lady to come in and crash a party of such a fine man as Simon? He's his guest. Won't he defend Simon and say, hey, lady, you're not invited. Leave, please, and don't identify yourself with me, please. He doesn't do that. How dare a prostitute market her wares in front of the holiest men of the city? Jesus were truly acting like a responsible adult, a prophet of God. He wouldn't allow this. This is, this is scandalous. It is. I have even heard that sort of sentiment in our church over the years. Pastor. You're not going to let those jungle drums up there on that stage, are you? You know, those, you know the beat of those drums? You know what people dance to the beat? You know what kind of song? Uh, what kind of dances they do to that beat? <laughs> jungle drums. Pastor, you're not going to let people wearing shorts hand out communion, are you? And I'm not looking at you, Tom. Bare naked legs handling the Lord's body and blood. Come on. Pastor, they say it like that, pastor, you can't go to a meal where people are drinking beer, beer, pastor, how can you marry divorced people? Pastor, don't you know that some of the people in here smoke cigarettes? I've seen them. Pastor, this is to be a holy place and you allow the Super Bowl to be played? How dare you? It's the same kind of flavor. So why? If her behavior 
was so scandalous, and if her position as town prostitute is so wrong, why would Jesus dare to allow this to happen? Remember, she kissed his feet. I think in the mind of Jesus, there are some things that matter more than acting proper and maintaining appearances. There's some things that just matter more. There's some things that override social convention. There's some things that are more important than religious customs, tradition, and important people's expectations. There are just some things that matter more to Jesus. And I find two, two things that move Jesus to ignore the whispers of the forked tongue. Number one, this is amazing. He saw her. He saw her. It's interesting. All the Pharisees saw was a sinner, a prostitute. The Pharisee did not see a person. He saw a problem, a problem. He saw a label. He didn't see a soul. Everything about Simon was about him. She was ruining his party. It wasn't about her because in Simon's eyes, she's nothing. She's zero. She's not, she doesn't matter. He matters. He's important. She's ruining his party. In contrast, Jesus saw a desperate human being made in the image of God who was broken, trapped in sin, a debtor, a debtor waiting to be released. So to help the Pharisee see this, because he's blind, the Pharisee's blind, Jesus tells a little teeny story, a little parable. Often he tells parables to wake you up to what's really going on. He, it's, they're, they're, one writer said it's, it's to reframe the situation, to reverse what's going on. And listen to the story. Verse 41. Or 40, Jesus saying to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. Because he could read Simon's mind. He knew Simon thought Jesus was a fraud. Okay, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. Sort of like, yeah, what, what is it? What is it? Well, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. A denarii is one day's pay, so 500 is a year and a half of pay. He owed a year and a half of pay. And the other, 50, which is a month and a half of pay. So one owed a year and a half of pay, and one owed a month and a half of pay. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered. You can hear Simon going, oh, that's a tough one. Oh, I wonder. And one, I, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you know, you've judged rightly. Then... Turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see her? Do you see this woman? Because Jesus sees people. Do you see people? Or are they only problems that get in the way of your agenda for the day? Are they only labels? Are they... Nobody really of that much importance. So you see, people who are grown up and reasonable in our propriety, we want to be left alone. We want to do our own thing. We don't want anybody to 
interrupt, and I'll tell you, this is convicting to me because sometimes I just want to sit in my office when I hear the door knock. Oh, no. It's hard to see people. We often just see what brings us comfort. We want life to be about us, not about them. Did you know daily you interact with desperate people? Daily, every day. Do you see them? Do you care about them? Or are they only a bother? Are they only a bother? Jesus sees. It's funny, I just, just a side point, I was just thinking about it. When I, sometimes when I had youth groups, we'd go down to the, we'd go down to when they'd have, oh, the arts fair in Grand Rapids, and we would just go try to talk to people and witness to people, and often we'd see Christians with signs that say, you're all going to hell, you're all losers, and then people would love to yell at them, they'd get mad at those Christians for those signs, and the people who are mad at the Christians, often we think they're the belligerent ones, and I just go, go up and talk to those guys because honestly, often they're the people that just want answers the most. So if you go up to them and you say, why are you so mad at the people holding the sign? Because they don't know what they're talking. They don't know me. They don't know me. And you ask them, well, who are you? I just, my family's falling apart. I try for God. He doesn't even answer me. And then they come and condemn me. Because I'm doing something that they don't like, so they're telling me I'm going to hell. And it's interesting. There are desperate people, and often they seem like they're the most hostile, when really hostility often is just a front for brokenness. It really is. So the first reason is he saw her. Second reason, and this is the most important, this woman gets it. She gets it. She understands. The lady came to Jesus because she has been forgiven much. She gets the enormity of the purpose for why Jesus came, and she's overwhelmed by it. She knows why he's here. The Pharisee sees in Jesus only another rabbi to intellectually spar with. Let's talk about the fine points of law. He does not see Jesus as the son of of God. He's got God in his living room. God is in your living room. He doesn't see it. She sees it. She sees the real Savior of the world. He doesn't. He sees somebody just to spar with, a sparring partner. That is why Jesus says, and look in verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house your house, you gave me no water for my feet. That's only normal hospitality. You know, when guys come over to your house in the Middle East and they've been walking all day, they don't have cars, their feet get dusty, they're probably dry and sore. Offer them some water. He said, you didn't offer me any water. And you know what? She did what you didn't do. She used her tears and wiped the tears with her hair because you didn't give me a towel. Look at verse 45. You gave me no kiss. That's, a, that's when, you have a, when you have a friend come over to be hospitable, you give them a kiss, a greeting. He didn't do that. 
Boy, she did. She kissed his, she kissed his feet. That's overwhelming to me. And in verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. He didn't offer him some kind of refreshment, some refreshing oil, but she took her precious jar of alabaster, which is really all she had, and she broke it because she knew who he was. She gets it. And because she gets it, she's willing to go to the end of embarrassment and extravagance to show her love towards Christ. Simon and most religious grown-ups don't get it. We acknowledge Jesus, but to fall down in tears before him, giving him all we got to bring him glory, ah, that's too much. That's too much. Look at verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, Jesus isn't denying her sin, are forgiven. Why? She loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I want to ask you a very serious question because I think sometimes when this is read, we read it a certain way. We don't realize we do it, but we read it like this. Who in here has only needed a little of God's forgiveness? I think we would say, well, not me, but have you ever met somebody who has an incredible testimony and they'll say, well, you know why they are so on fire? Look at how rotten their life was before they came to Christ. Was it yours? I don't have a testimony like that. Yes, you do. Oh, no, I don't. Who are we comparing sins with? We often usually compare it with our neighbor, or in this case, they're comparing it with a prostitute. See, her sexual sin is terrible. Is it worse than their bitterness and arrogance? Is it? I think sometimes some of us, we even look at like angry black men who fight the police, or we look at even homosexuals, or we'll look at somebody who is promiscuous and say, that's not me. However, I don't mind being rude, bitter, and unloving to people and never open my house to anybody. Is that? Why? Who in here has only needed a little of God's forgiveness? I think some people have said, well, Jesus is saying that because the lady's sins were excessive and she excessively sinned. And the Pharisee was a good guy and he wasn't that bad. So Jesus is understandably offering him less forgiveness. That's probably why he's not as radical and sold out as she is. But he's a good guy. That isn't what Jesus means at all by that statement. Here's what he means. This lady gets it. And she gets what most people do not. Forgiveness from the Holy God is the greatest news, the most mind-blowing gift we could ever receive. Do you understand how holy God really is? I mean, really. Really is. He is. It says in Isaiah 40, He sits above the circle of the earth and we are like grasshoppers in comparative size. It says he's so pure, he can't look upon iniquity. It says when he gave the law, thunder came down off of Sinai, and if you touch the mountain, you die. If you touch the mountain, you die, you die. Why? Because he's holy. He's holy. 
I'm not sure we really understand that or believe it. I think one of the worst mental habits that humans, and for that matter, grown-ups deal with, is this indifference to forgiveness. The whole book of Luke, really, I was reading in one commentary, it said you really want to know the main message of Luke, but people don't like it because it seems so simple. The main message of Luke is that forgiveness is offered to everybody. That's the message. That's what Acts is. Jesus came so you could be forgiven of sins. But people want more. Give me something else. You got something else? Come on. You have been forgiven by a holy God. A holy God. He's incredible. Some people say, I'm not that bad. I think some of us even in here think we're doing God a favor by going to church and paying a tithe. As if we're rubbing God's head like we would a five-year-old boy saying, you're a good lad. Here's an hour of my week on Sunday, and here's a gold shiny coin in the offering. Now go and play. I have adult things to do the rest of the week. One 19th century poet said, I know that without me, God cannot live an instant, and God needs me as much as I need him. God needs me? What's he need me for? Well, he needs me to sing songs to him, or else he'd be awfully lonely. Really? Is that why we worship? Because we're doing God a favor? I think some people think that, that if we didn't sing or show up on Sunday, he's like a lonely kid who needs somebody just to hang out with him. I feel bad for God. It's kind of empty over there, there. God, poor God. The truth is, for God to forgive me, he had to do something more scandalous than having a prostitute kiss his son's feet. He had to allow death and sin to kiss his son's life. He had to allow his son to hang on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That means shame, scandal. He let his son die so you could be forgiven. How much, here's another question, you can look at it like this. How much is his son worth? How much is his son worth? It's very interesting because everything you see of worth, anything that you give worth to, his son made. So anything that has any value, Jesus spoke it into existence. He even cast the stars. It says the stars are his finger work. He numbers them one by one. So Jesus knows the stars and everything that you consider valuable, he made, he spoke into existence. So what is the worth of Christ? People say it's priceless. No, it's not priceless. Jesus is the consummation of all worth, of all things. He is worth. That's what worship means, to give worth, because he's the most worthy, because he is infinite in value. Okay, so if he's infinite in value then for, him, for me to be forgiven, he had to die for me. How much was I forgiven? Ah, not too much. What? <laughs> Infinite. He who is forgiven much. If Jesus had to die for me, that means I was forgiven much. Wow. This lady gets it. Simon doesn't. And I wonder, do you and I? I, I wonder that about myself. Honestly. So the question is, how do you tell if you get it? Love. The sign we actually get it is love. Much love. Scandalous love. A love that 
cries with hot dripping tears over our sin and praises God in sometimes very inappropriate ways. And then has enormous compassion on people who are trapped in their sin and doesn't see them as a problem, but sees them as a person. Love for Jesus. This lady had it, and she was not afraid to embarrass herself to express it. Look at verses 47 to 50. I believe love is the root or the basis for which faith is built. Love and faith, in a way, are synonymous. Look at verse 47 to 50. Watch what Jesus says. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, they're forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who are at the table with them began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this guy? And then 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So he's equating 47 and 50. Because you love much, you're forgiven much. And then he says, your faith has saved you. So what he's doing is equating faith and love. In a way, they are mingled together. Why do the demons not exercise faith? They know God. They see him. The demons see him, but they don't have any faith. Why? They don't love him. They don't want him. John Piper writes it like this. Look at this phrase. Saving faith means that which makes you a child of the living God receives the truth of Christ not merely as a fact. That's a good fact to know. I'm glad we learned that. But a treasured fact. Like where I'm... It's mine. It's mine. Not just as the description of a person and his deeds... You know, Jesus did this, died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Yeah, I got it. I understand it. But as a treasured person whose deeds are treasured for how valuable they are, he died for me. He was whipped, beaten, spit on for me. That is, saving faith includes loving Christ, treasuring him for who he is. Jesus said, I am the pearl of great price. The man who found this pearl goes and sells everything just so he can go and buy this pearl. That's mine. It's my pearl. He's my pearl. I believe faith, which means receiving the promise of Christ, must first come from a heart that loves Christ himself. Let me say that again. I believe faith, which means receiving the promise and promises of Christ, comes from a heart that loves Christ first. Uh, let me put it like this. Here's an analogy. I don't get married because of the promise of marriage. You know, sociologists say marriage is good for you, makes you a better man. You know, you'll get richer if you get married. Socioeconomically, it's a, it's a great basis for our culture. Nuclear family, marriage is a good thing. That's not why I got married. I didn't get married because marriage is good for me. Actually, I was doing quite fine not being married until I met this lady, Michelle. She turned my life upside down. I'm just telling you, I could not get married to her. It was Michelle that caused me to appreciate marriage. Not marriage. In the same way, it's Jesus. It's Jesus that helps me appreciate faith's promises. That I get to live forever. That I get heaven. That I get peace. That I get joy. I'm not a Christian just so I can get heaven, get peace, and get joy. I'm a Christian because of Christ. He's unbelievable. He's unbelievable. That's what this lady got. 
Faith begins not for faith's promises, but because I'm in love with a person named Jesus Christ. I personally am in love with Jesus because he's so good. He's so good. Even the story today is meant to reveal to us the character of the God that loves me. And as I look at this, everybody else at the party, everybody else at the party saw a sinner, saw a problem, saw somebody to stay away from. Only Jesus saw a person that he died for. I feel that way often before I saved. I think people didn't want me around, really. I was this, I thought I was cool. I was a cool bartender, rugby playing guy. I'm a white guy, you know, angry white male. Jesus saw Chris Weeks, a man in desperate need. He wanted me. He saw me. He wanted me. He died for me, and I love him for it. He loved me with a scandalous love. Why was Jesus' love scandalous? Because nobody else would die for me. You don't die for that guy. Look at him. But Jesus didn't care how other people viewed me. And because of how he loved me, I love him. And I'm compelled to place my faith in him, and I'm compelled to live by faith with him. John Piper goes on to write, when you receive him, what do you receive him as? This is a great statement. What do you receive him as? The common evangelical answer, and it's true, is I receive him as my personal Lord and Savior. But he goes, but did the scripture ever mean that saving faith receives Christ as anything less than a supreme treasure? Did the Bible ever mean receive him as Lord but not treasured Lord? Did the Bible ever mean receive him as Savior but not as treasured Savior? No. Receiving Christ as he is means receiving him as a supreme treasure that he is. So saving faith receives Jesus as he truly is. He is the supreme treasure of all who receive him. He is everything. Is he your treasure? You could ask it like this. Do you love much? Do you love much? Or do you just want to be left alone? Live a life that's proper. You don't want to leave your bubble of comfort. You like your life measured. I once heard that one of the biggest problems with being an adult is that adults no longer believe in fairy tales. They no longer get excited about stories of great adventures with scary monsters and evil forces. Because we're adults, we're past that. I would add, I think one of the biggest problems with being an adult is we've lost scandalous love. We see people as problems to our comfort. We see Jesus as a savior only available for those who need to be forgiven just a little. Pat him on the head on Sunday. Give him a shiny coin. I got better things, more important things to do the rest of the week. But I'll see you next Sunday, little Jesus, little fella. Have you been forgiven much? Or just a little? Will you pray? Lord, we uh, are overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed by your graciousness of giving me another day. I think all of us, God, if we really contemplate who we're talking to, if we could see you. Scripture says if we saw you right now, each of us would die. 
We need the righteousness of Christ in order to look at you. And uh, Father, I, I, um, I just ask two things. I just pray, first of all, you would help us, Lord, to really contemplate what it means to be forgiven again. Help us to never stop thinking about that. Help us to be different people because of that. And so secondly, God, help us to see people differently, not as problems, not as a cramp in our style or somebody to deal with, but as a person in need. We love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray.